Welcome back to Weekly Specials. I'm Will Gadara, your host, and I'm excited to have you listening. I had a chance to spend time with my dad the last two weeks. It's something we do every year. We have a father-son trip. We try to be as intentional as possible in setting aside time to connect. It's one of the things that I've learned from him is the importance of intention. That if you don't decide to make something happen, in spite of how badly you want to make it happen, too often it will slip through the cracks. During this time, this season in our lives, our world has been put on hold. And yet so many of the people that I talk to, whether it's through trying to figure out how to make their businesses work or trying to fight for relief for restaurants or in just running through the day-to-day if your parents and the schools aren't open and so you're doing a lot more on your own than you're used to doing. Our worlds have been put on hold and yet somehow we're busier than we've ever been before. And so it reminds me of the importance of intention. I was on the phone with my friend Simon Sinek the other day, and he was telling me about the importance of making space, that there are so many of us and the restaurant business is dominated by this type of person that are doers. When things get difficult, we figure out what it is that we can do to help. In restaurants, we're feeding people, whether it's frontline workers or people in need. There are lobbying efforts. We're trying to do our best to take care of our teams, even those that aren't currently working with us. But his challenge to me was to be intentional about creating space for myself to pursue the relationships that are important. And well, honestly, to make space for whatever I decide to make space for. And it was a beautiful reminder because until a week or so ago, I hadn't been intentional enough about doing just that. And so this is me paying that forward and reminding everyone out there that as much as we all are doers and we are all trying to help everyone else, it's important that during this season, we make space for ourselves as well. I'm excited to have you back. We have a really exciting show where we're welcoming a new person into the weekly specials family. So we're going to jump right in. If you like this show and you want to stay in touch or learn more, visit us at welcomeconference.org or on Instagram at welcomeconference. Welcome back to weekly specials. It's the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. Weekly All right, and now it's time to talk to our next guest, Colleen Vincent, VP of Community at the James Beard Foundation and co-founder of Black Food Folks, an organization dedicated to connecting and supporting Black individuals in the food and drink community. She's been a vocal champion for diverse leadership across our industry for a long time now. I'm also thrilled that Colleen is going to be joining us from time to time as a guest host on this show as we continue to have important conversations about race and real meaningful change within the hospitality industry. Colleen, how was that? Did I miss anything? I know Uh, you probably have even more on your plate. That sounds great. That sounds great. That's fine. Thank you. Well, welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you. 
So I'd love to just start, I'm always interested with people in our industry's origin story. How'd you get into the hospitality industry in the first place? I know you worked in music, events, I think PR, but could you tell us like what drew you into this world? Okay, so this is always a really funny question because it was never a pursuit of mine to work in food. At alternate points, I wanted to be a vet, I wanted to direct movies, I wanted to work for the NFL. And so I ended up in hospitality in a very roundabout way. I worked in events in various different forms and fashions for quite some time. And I ended up actually working for Carlet, creating private dining experiences for financial executives. And I found that extremely interesting. I worked with the West Coast market and I had never been to any of these places. You know, I wasn't a person that went out to find dining experiences. Although, you know, as a Caribbean person and certainly as a tourist, I do love delicious food, but I never thought of it beyond, you know, okay, this tastes delicious or I'm hanging out with my family. So, you know, here I am putting together these experiences and not knowing what they are personally for myself. And so when that job ended, my sister who was working at Amy's Bread because she actually did want to work in food. She wanted to be a baker and actually went to Johnson and Wales. She said there was an opening at the James Beard Foundation. And I didn't know what the James Beard Foundation was until I started working at Carlet. So I didn't, it it didn't register with me about it being anything to be very frank, but it sounded interesting enough. and, And I interviewed and I had a really great rapport And so I ended up being the reservations manager for the foundation. Now, I had worked in customer service before, but I didn't, you know, the benefit wasn't having, you know, delicious food and meeting so many interesting artistic people and getting plugged into a culture that I really, really had no idea existed before. The way I thought about fine dining was, and, you know, I mean, it still is in some places to some degree, is just like little dots on a plate of sauce and everybody being like really excited to eat nothing. And so that's how I thought about it. And so I ended up working for the James Beard Foundation. And in my department, you get plugged into not only this community of diners all at once, but also, you know, this community of chefs in front of house and the staff at the house itself, like there's a whole community of people really, really excited about hospitality, you know, as a culture, certainly as an experience. And so, you know, I got a crash course in what that meant. Real quick, real quick, just because I want to understand. So as the reservations manager at the James Beard Foundation, where were you going to work every day? Were you you going to the Beard House? That's a Beard House. (laughs) Here's the thing that makes this really funny is I don't want to say I'm not into like the secret or anything like that. But There are times where you go like, come on, this is too much of a coincidence. I had a long time thought in my head. I was like, I want to live in a townhouse in the West Village. (laughs) And I worked enough to live in a townhouse in the West Village. Like that's, you know, and on the fourth floor too. And if you know anything about the Beard House, there's no elevator. So I was walking up four flights of stairs every single day. It's a great workout, but Boy, nobody, you don't want to start your day that way after riding the New York City subway. You definitely don't. But I work with like the best people. You know, we all have our own different personalities. But when I say that I 
ended up working with a family. And, and I'm not saying that in a sarcastic way at all. Certainly, I've ended, I ended up working with a, a family. Like the team definitely became a family. We talked to each other outside of work. Like, who does that? You know, but people in this industry do, right? Yeah. I got exposed to a lot all at once. And food for me was never like, let's wax poetic about a pole bean for, you know, four pages. But I did see how food could be something that was not only like communal, but disarming. At the same time, you could talk about difficult topics over food for sure. You could get a lot of different perspectives through the food, through the people that make the food, through the people that you're dining with. And you could tell the most interesting stories, however you want, whatever story you have, there's always some food element to the whole thing. And I consider myself a person who is interested in culture. And there's so much about culture, healthy and unhealthy, that's attached to food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you talk about conversations, one of the things we've talked about for years is that some of the most meaningful conversations, good, bad, heartfelt, horrific, intense, passive, they happen around the table over food and wine. And I'm looking forward to, on the other side of this, having one of these conversations with you over okay, the table. Sure. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so, so can you tell me as you kind of, so you've been at the Beard House for 14 years, is that? Almost 14 true? years. In August, it'll be 14 years. Yeah. So can you tell me about your journey there and about the path and the different positions? Sure. You know, when I started working there, I worked in reservations and anybody who knows me knows that like low key, I am very much like my dad in that I don't want, it's not about shaking things up. It's more like I have an idea, so let's do it. And so very quickly, there were things that I saw and I wanted, and I didn't see it as ambition. I saw it as progress. So I kind of became the, you know, a little champion for what I perceived to be things that were missing. And so very early on in my career there, you know, it started kind of with things that I wanted for my fellow staff members. And then it progressed to me noticing, as I learned more, noticing that you have this entire industry of people that's, while everybody is hardworking and diligent, is not representative. And I very quickly made the association that maybe that had a lot to do with the fact that the people in charge were not representative. And so I made my crusade and case to the higher-ups about how we as an organization should consider becoming thought leaders in diversity of leadership at the highest levels of the food community. And when I say food community, I, you know, I mean chefs, I mean PR, I mean policymakers. And as I proposed that, I also work to be the change that I wanted to see. And so what that meant was, besides the learning that I was having, you know, just on a day-to-day basis on my team, you know, I decided to delve into food as a subject. So consider me an amateur researcher in that regard. And I had the opportunity to work on something really great that was conceived by Diane Harris-Brown, who's since retired, that was called Beard on Books. So it was a curated series of book readings, people in our industry, all over our industry, who 
you know, had various topics and, and maybe we had it at a weird time for sure. It was in the middle of the day on Wednesday, but it was my favorite thing to do. I got to handle logistics. And when I felt a little more confident in my knowledge base, I decided to help book the author. And so with a little bit of persuasion, one of the first people that I booked was Nicole Taylor. And that's because I had already met her and thought she was like the coolest thing since life bred, this brilliant tiny woman and her like unapologetically Southern drawl. And she actually asked me to read the galleys for her book. And, 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 and I, you know, it's like, I, I can cook, but I'm not doing all of that. I'll read it though. So I used the personal power that I had to give this person access that they may not have had before, right? She was already a brilliant person. She had told me about a lot of different people and introduced me to a lot of different people. She's the person that actually formally cemented Clay and I's friendship at Black Food Folks. And so, you know, that became something that I really loved doing. And so I did that. And then I would make recommendations to our programming director about chefs that, you know, maybe should appear at the Beard House. And I went to the Minority Chef Summit hosted by Erica Dupree Klein. And, and because of that, I met people like Therese Nelson of Black Culinary History. And I want to thank Nicole Albano from Bolster PR for actually introducing me to Erica. And so I went to the Minority Chef Summit. The first one that I went to was in Barbados. The second one I went to was in Haiti. And so just, just real quick as a level set, what year, what year are we on right now? Oh, I mean like 2014 to 2016, something along there. Um, okay. Yeah. And unfortunately dates are not my thing. I can, hmm. you know, I can, I can tell you, like, I can tell you of an experience. I can tell you the smell, color, whatever, ask me the date or even the people sometimes like, nah, I don't know. And that shows where my priorities lie. <laughs> but, you know, I met a host of chefs that had already like so many of us had been thinking like there's a whole set of people that kind of left out of conversations and that not only is it the responsibility of people who have access in this industry to make sure we hold the door open for the next generation but also actually transmit some skills some information some knowledge to the next generation and so i got linked up with all these really cool people and, you know, decided that this was going to be my calling. Do I mean for life? I don't know. There's a lot of people that do these things better than I do. But it was my calling in that, you know, there are all these people who maybe they're not being denied opportunities, but they're certainly not being offered opportunities. So that is how we get to today. You know, I have been with the foundation for a long time. My title has changed about three times. And, you know, I would say that I experienced my own glass ceiling. And, you know, it's not my thought that these things are purposeful, but I do think that it, for some reason, it just seems harder for people to make space for people who look like me. I think it's just that we're not, people are taught not to see us as we really are. That's what I do. Can I ask you to dig into that a little bit more? Because, I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do with some of these conversations. And I said this when I introduced this idea onto the, to the show initially is I'm a dining room guy. Mm -hmm. We're trained 
to at all costs avoid any conversation at all that ruffles feathers, right? Like, right. And, and I think one of the responsibilities that I feel right now through the Welcome Conference, which is something that's founded on the power of dialogue, is to wade into those uncomfortable conversations to normalize them a little bit, because I think all of us need to have them more often and, and hear what comes from them more often. Because in order to make progress, we need to understand how we got here, understand what's been happening. And so when you talk about hitting your glass ceiling, can you just share a moment where you personally uh, experience like that kind of systemic racism? I'm, I'm asking you to name names or yeah. it doesn't uh, need to be even within the hospitality business at all. I mean, be very frank. You know, I have worked, I've had a lot of different jobs, like a lot of different jobs. When I start thinking about it, it's kind of tremendous how many different spheres I've worked in and and. You know, so the reason I say that's tremendous is that particularly as a woman and especially as a black one, um, imposter syndrome is certainly real. And what that what I think fuels imposter syndrome is that you've spent so much time overachieving and banging your head against the wall and somehow start to internalize that you just haven't done the work, that you're missing something, you know, and. And that was with me for a long time, you know, to be very frank. I do think that it contributed to, you know, some of the challenges I had with uh, substances. And certainly it contributed to an overwhelming sense of, is this it? Or that I just wasn't good enough to be good enough. And, you know, some of the ways that happens is I was a manager for 11 years. And in the 11 years, the next title I was offered was manager, you know, and my experience, and this is not, you know, whatever talking to anyone else, but my personal experience is that what I've seen in this industry and many others is that it seems to be easier to make space for white people when there's no visible path than it is for the rest of us it seems easier to see the big accomplishments sometimes that people have in terms of like bringing in like capital or what have you than see the people who are supporting and keeping things running day to day. Yes. The people who keep the things running day to day are the reason other people are able to do their job. The fact that I, as reservations manager, had to handle different kinds of people constantly, expectations, manage up, manage down, adjust, switch all kinds of platforms, weigh in on event experience before and after, switch seating, work cross teams throughout the organization, didn't stop someone from saying to me, oh, you went to UPenn and you're doing reservations? It didn't stop people from not using the title that I was getting, you know, the title that I had, which was manager and calling me reservationist or asking me questions like, how did you end up at the James Beard Foundation? And that happened all the time. And it's that we, first of all, perceive certain jobs as more valuable than others, but also that we see faces attached to certain jobs and we presume that it doesn't take any particular kind of skill or expertise to do those jobs well and with dignity. 
One of the things that when, when I was talking to Naisha, the, the frequency with which people would come up to her and say, where's the chef? Right. When she was the chef of the restaurant. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like it was, I mean, to see me in person, some people were definitely surprised. Definitely like other black people were like happily surprised. They were like, black people work at the James Beard Foundation. They didn't even <laughs> know we were allowed. I was like, there are actually a lot of us there. You just don't see us. Like, you know, you just don't see us, but we're the people that like keep the thing going. You know what I mean? And so one of the most valuable experiences I had at working at 12th Street was that so many of us, it was, you know, with office and also house staff and wait staff. So front of house, back of house, and administration work together all the time. We had conversations with each other all the time. And, you know, we were certainly a conduit for each other when things would be uncomfortable. At the very least, we had other people to commiserate with. And I think that's extremely important because I think a lot, a lot of people don't understand, first of all, is that you know, I come from office culture too, and I've worked for like small and big, whatever, but a lot of restaurant culture, like the camaraderie should stay, but a lot of it shouldn't. Part of what shouldn't is this idea that credentials are what should be the marker of your absolute success. And the reason why is because when you look at restaurant culture, who is allowed to get those credentials? is very much determined by what's happening in the rest of our, our society. And I say this as a person who has privilege. I think of myself as a person of privilege. You know, granted, I have a student loan from hell, but I went to, you know, I went to an Ivy League school. So I know how to code switch. I know how to talk to different kinds of people. I know how to use all the big words. And for lack of a better expression, I understand white people, period. And also... You know, I've been taught to think critically about certain things, but it doesn't mean that I'm smarter than anybody else. It just means that I'm fluent in certain places. And what I see that happens to a lot of folks in our industry is that they get burnt out and left behind because of this inability to see them. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about black food folks, but just real quick, your new role at the Beard mm -hmm. Foundation. What are you charged to do? So I just got named VP of community after being like director of community for a little less than a year. And so part of my role is to shepherd, hopefully, and it's an extension of what I have been doing already, kind of shepherd through and make sure the foundation is navigating these new waters in a better way than before. You know, what we're coming out of, and I'm speaking to a greater society, are two lines of thinking. One is that people that don't deserve, and the other one is that all these poor people need help. And both of these positions presume that black and brown people are deficient in some way. And we are absolutely not. We are brilliant thinkers, brilliant artists, extremely creative and extremely innovative. And then, you know, some of us are not and should be allowed to have the freedom to be as average and mediocre as we want to be. <laughs> but because so many of us have had to be exceptional, there are quite a number of us. We've had to be really um, creative around this point. And 
what I hope is that my intentions of making sure that the leadership in this community looks like the people in this community, some people aren't going to get with that. I frankly think that the next world, while we go through the contractions of this one, that the next world for this industry can be so much better and is so much better served by people who understand that like being in this together means that we all will have a much richer experience. Yeah. No, one of the things that came out of the last conversation we had was you articulated it in a way that was meaningful for me and the idea of active, passive, active. I'm not sure if those were your exact words or whether the conversation just kind of gave birth to them, but the idea that on one end, in a very negative way, there are people that are actively racist. Yeah. And you and know, that, those are the people you can avoid. You, you know who is. But I know for me, like, there's been so much gaslighting about whether or not something is racist when it's like, yo, I've lived in America my entire life and I know what is and isn't racist. And people think, like, burning crosses on lawns is racism. Well, yeah, it is, but it takes a lot to get to that point. And what happens is, is that if I go into, if I go into a fancy restaurant and, and, you know, we call it white glove service, but I go just fancy, it's fancy and um, poorly served, even though, you know, nicely dressed. And because I work in the service industry, I'm a great tipper. That happens, you know, because some Somebody has presumed that all the people who look like me don't tip, you know, whereas some of us have overcompensated and tip too much. And that if I walk into a restaurant and I'm looking for a job, you know, that because I'm not sylph-like and perfect skin, you know, it's like, you know, they go in the back, like, you know, they shouldn't be on the floor. And, you know, a lot of it is people say, oh, the consumer, the consumer, the diner, this, that, the other. But what we've seen in the past couple of years is that, you know, restaurants can make the culture. Because the fact of the matter is you have a lot of chefs walking around with tons of tattoos and a beard and, you know, earrings and piercings and all these things. And people think they're the greatest thing, bees knees. Whereas we've come from a culture where it was like you had to have hair a certain length, clean shaven like no tattoos, it was seen as unseemly. We can make the switch. The question is, do we have the energy to do something like that? Especially now when so much of what we thought was true and and what we thought was gonna exist forever has to change. But I do think that we're a community of extremely adaptable people. I mean, everybody that I know in this industry has like at least two like artistic outlets chefs and musicians and poets and like painters and singers and writers like everybody has at least two so that tells me that we know how to redirect our energies into worthwhile endeavors and and that tells me that the solution for all of this inequity can rest with us if we're willing to change yes it's it's the opposite active yeah. It's taking action and putting it towards good. Right. And I think, and I think, listen, you talk about energy, the timing of everything right now, in one sense, the energy of our industry has been completely sapped out of it, right? Due to Corona. And so the, and if you have a pessimistic view, 
resources are more limited and this and that. And how can you actually make any real change when the whole thing is just on the ropes, right? But in the other sense, and this is, I think, the optimistic pursuit is it's been torn down so much and right. there's never a more opportune time to fix something than when you already need to fix it anyway. Right. You can build the thing you want to see. And like, you know, really very um, adamantly, I'll say this is that look to black and brown people for yeah. these kinds of creative solutions. Because if you particularly foundational um, black America has been through so much change and loss and tragedy, and while all of these things are true, have managed to create a culture that lasts through the ages that has become globally imprinted and still managed to be tastemakers and change makers despite all of that. And, you know, I will say for me personally, when Clay and I started Black Food Folks last year, we did it for our community and we still do. But who would have thought that the most challenging time of any of our lives would be the kind of spring of so much rich content and stories and activity and collaboration and that's what's happened you know that's what's happened and you know i would say for me you know i actually had covid and i lost a lot of people um you know i had friends and family die and april was the darkest month of my life and i can say now that Maybe we have to go through those kinds of experiences to have a transformation mentally, the transformation we need to do the next thing. Because I will tell you, I came out of that horrific experience with a different mindset. And while I still, you know, I'm still grieving and, and, and while I'm still grieving, what happened is I, you know, I, I had friends die quite quickly some of them very shockingly. I had my uncle took 22 days to die. And all of those different experiences kind of remind you, like, are you living the life that you want to live right now? And also make you stop thinking about yourself. Like, yes, the life I'm living right now, but like, what kind of world am I leaving for everybody else? Because even though I don't have any children, there are still children in my family. There's still young people in my family. Like, in our industry, I think, you know, there are enough of us who think about our industry as, like, one big family. Dysfunctional, yes. But one <laughs> big family. Very, very dysfunctional. We, yeah. I love describing. It's true. I mean, it's what makes it human. Everything is well and truly messed up, right? Everything is, like... Everything we thought was going to be true in 2020 is like a lie or a hot ass mess, right? We thought if the shit hit the fan, sorry, that maybe we had a social safety net that would take care of that, us. That's not true. We thought that, you know, in-room dining was, we never thought that would go away. That's not true. My dad always says adversity is a terrible thing to waste. And if all the stuff that was good that we thought was true is no longer going to be true, then we better well make sure that the stuff that was bad that we thought was going to be true also isn't true anymore. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's like, wow, we have a tremendous opportunity to, first of all, live out our well and true personal ideals. Like, 
actually live out our personal ideals, like not bend our will for a customer who is problematic, you know, maybe grabs the wait staff a certain way and talks to the reception desk another way. Like, we don't have to deal with that person anymore. You know, we can say to an investor, like, do you align with our ideals? Because this matters. I want to make sure, like, just the from 30,000 feet that people listening understand what Black Food Folks is, why you guys started and what you're trying to accomplish, beyond the obvious. All right. So to be clear, Clay tells the story a lot better than I do in the sense of like, we had our own discussions and he was like, let's get everybody in a room. And myself and my sister, my dad are type of people that take things to a hundred. And so when we got people in the room, it wasn't like, you know, happy hour. And, and the very simple reason for that is like, I don't drink. So I didn't want it to do that. But also, you know, I thought we could do something better for us. And so, you know, we end up using my dad's event space in Flatbush, Brooklyn, Caddy Corner to Prospect Park. It's a tax space and an event space. So my dad does taxes and then he holds mm-hmm. events. And it's not a little space. It's just when you walk in, you think of it as one way. I think it used to be a fish market. But when you go to the back, you see that it's huge open space with a huge tree in the middle that he like made a tent around so that it's covered. And so we had this event thinking like, well, we'll just get all these people in a room, right? And Clay being the photographer that he is, he captured, you know, all of these beautiful people in a room. And definitely we were all buzzing after that particular event, but people responded so well to you know, let's all hang out as a family. Let's find out what our community needs that we're like, okay, so we have this thing. So we'll just keep meeting up. But what ended up happening was people made all kinds of connections with one another. And the value that we found in those connections, well, I would say I'll speak for myself. Initially, the value that I found was that being in an industry and particularly parts of an industry where you don't see a lot of people that look like you, you know that they exist, but you don't see them. There's something that we all need. And what we need is like peer support. You know, there's not a lot of mentorship for black people in this industry. You know, a number of people have brought that up. There's not a lot of mentorship. There's not a lot of like the same degree of networking and you need to be able to network in order to move in certain particularly this industry, but certainly a lot of the front-facing industries. And so you had all these people who had all this talent, who had done these amazing things, but couldn't necessarily do the next thing that they wanted to do or connect with the right people because everybody's operating in their own silos. And so the response to what we did was so great that initially Clay and I conceived of it as we would go to when Clay and I's schedule said we were traveling XYZ place, we would have like meetups in those other cities. And then Clay wanted to kind of develop the professional development aspect. And we had just started doing that part when COVID-19 hit. And because our world was transformed so traumatically and dramatically, what Black food folks ended up becoming, and it was, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that Clay very immediately was affected by everything shutting down was that we started having conversations on our Instagram 
what it turned into is a place where people who didn't have didn't have all the same platforms as everybody else, you know, didn't necessarily end up on the same, you know, um, YouTube channels and test kitchens and food network shows. And although some of them have been on food network shows, were able to speak their truth and be honest as possible, not just about the industry, but about themselves and their guiding passion, why they do what they do, you know? Instagram Live, I'll tell you one thing that Instagram Live, the, the drawback of Instagram Live is that you got 60 minutes and you get into the best conversations and then you have to cut them off because of the limitations of that. But, you know, we have over 46 episodes now, you know, a wonderful array of posts and people have been so generous with their time. What we get to do every single day is experience, learn about and celebrate the brilliance of black people in this industry yes no and the thing is that like there's not the the drawback isn't being black it's the response to your blackness that's the drawback because if anything it makes what they do so much richer well that i think is a great segue to the thing i'm super excited about which is that you're going to be joining us on a more regular basis here on weekly specials yes in an effort to bring that to our audience and to onto our platform and all of you listening, you know, this idea of just having these conversations like the one we had today and the ones we've had over the last couple of weeks. Um, we want to be sharing. We want to be challenging. We want to be listening. We want to be learning. And you're going to be a big part of doing that with us over the next, however long. And so yeah, I'm excited. Well, so before we started this, you said, I don't, I'm not good at sound bites, so I'm going to ask you for one now. Close as you can get to one. You don't need that. But so in a couple months, after people have listened to a bunch of these that you're going to do with us, we always say this, this idea that you can talk things into existence. What do you hope people will have taken away from listening to the conversations you're going to have on this show? Well, the thing I hope that people will take away is to kind of understand the humanness of everybody in this industry. That the things that you want, need, and love for yourself, other people want, need, and love about themselves. There are a whole lot of people out there who are brilliant and overlooked, and we need to be more conscious of that, that the average chef, sommelier, kitchen manager, porter, waitstaff have stories that are so much better than whatever is on TV right now. Yeah. <laughs> And we should celebrate and enjoy them, you know, because that's all they want to do is do what they love and, you know, be recognized for it. And that means in a lot of different ways, but certainly it means that they shouldn't be held back because of arbitrary distinction. Love that. It's a pretty good soundbite, Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I'm so excited to have you join the team and... I'm sure everyone who just listened to this interview is now as well. Thank you. I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for tuning in and hope you'll join us again next week on weekly specials. The show is produced by the team at the welcome conference and our production partners at Resi. And thank you to our longtime partners at American express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support during a time when we're not able to come together in person. Their support allows us to connect with you here. 
want to stay in touch or learn more, visit us at welcomeconference.org or on Instagram at welcomeconference. It's the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you.